one can think of every human being as having a mindset a skill set and a tool set and my experience has been that changing the mindset is the most difficult thing to do but it is also the most leveraging thing to do good morning everybody i'm rick highland with rlg international this is episode seven of CI for Life podcast. These podcasts are for people passionate about continuous improvement in their personal and professional lives. In February, we've been exploring ideas and methods on how to create a step change in safety. And uh, I've enjoyed the conversations uh, thoroughly. Hopefully you have. Thank you for your feedback on the podcast so far. I'm very excited today to welcome our guest, Anil Mather, to the program. Good morning, Anil. Good morning. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Good, good. Let me uh, give a little bit of your background and then I'll ask you to embellish. Um, very excited. And Neil and I have uh, known each other since early 2000s. He is the president and CEO of Alaska Tanker Co Company. And ATC is one of the oil tankers industry's longest running best safety records in the world. They've completed 17 years and 23 million man hours with only one, let me say that again, one lost time injury. Uh, since 2011. Uh, Anil has been well recognized in the field for his leadership as a CEO and in particular safety and in the field of safety he was named a CEO who gets it by the National Safety Council. He is also an ASSE President's Awards winner and is currently on the Board of Directors of the American Society of Safety Professionals. So Anil, that's a little bit about your background. I know you don't want to brag, but tell us, for the listeners, tell us a little bit more context about your personal and professional background before we get into your story. Sure, Rick. Thanks, and it's great to speak to you again. Great to be with you. Uh, so I was uh, born and raised in India, did my bachelor's in chemical engineering there, and then immediately got a scholarship to do my master's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. While I was doing that, I got hired by City Service, Sidco, and worked for them for five years, and they landed up sponsoring me for immigration. And while with them, I worked in small oil and gas fields in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, New Mexico. Also worked as a petrochemical plant engineer in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And you know, Rick, those were the bad old days, bad safety, bad behaviors, bad safety culture. Anyway, after five years there, I moved and joined BP, first in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I did my MBA from Berkeley while I was there. I started with them in construction and then worked for them for 20 years. Uh, during that period in the late 90s, they sent me off to Harvard for some management development programs. So while with BP in those 20 years, they moved me eight times. I think a couple of assignments that were relevant to our topic today were, one was as a superintendent up at Prudhoe Bay on the north slope of Alaska, uh, very inhospitable, minus 20 to minus 40 in the winters without the wind chill. Yeah. It just made um, maintenance work outside logically challenging and very, very hazardous. And then uh, in the middle 90s, I was an offshore installation management in the North Sea, some hundred miles off the coast of Scotland. And now, as you said, for the last 17 odd years, I've been running Alaska Tank Company. Um, we carry crude oil on large ocean-going tankers from Alaska to Washington and California. Uh, 
and once in a while uh, a welcome voyage to Hawaii. And the oceans in Puget Sound, Prince William Sound are very rough and the environmental needs and standards are very high. So well, that's a bit about my background, Rick. Yeah, so between Alaska and Scotland and the North Sea and now the in the tankers, you know a little bit about inclement weather and uh, all the challenges that can provide for safety. So, Neil, tell us why the issue and uh, about safety is so important to you. Yeah, Rick, uh, it didn't start out like that for me. Okay. Um, it kind of grew over time. And it stemmed from just seeing my co-workers, colleagues hurt very badly under what seemed to me absolutely avoidable circumstances. A lot of uh, safety incidents that uh, came, in my view, occurred from lack of planning and cultures that refused to discuss, that wouldn't allow a discussion on how work could be executed safely prior to starting a job. So my work in operations, as I've outlined in these harsh conditions, um, taught me that when you think things through and, more importantly, ensure top-notch execution, human beings can achieve extraordinary performance under really difficult conditions. And somehow making that happen became my life journey and my passion. Yeah, I know from listening to you before in other speeches that uh, you are passionate on the topic. I'm glad you mentioned planning already, and I think we're going to talk about that a little later in the program. But for the listeners that don't know Alaska Tanker and some of the safety results you've achieved over the last several years, why don't you just highlight that again, because your safety record is outstanding. Yeah, when I joined ADC in 2001, we were very mediocre American shipping company in terms of our safety and environmental performance. And now we are amongst the best in the world. And so I'm very proud of the team's commitment and performance, Rick. And as you said, we've completed 23 million man hours, some 17 years, with one lost time injury, which by the way was a fractured finger. That's amazing. And during that time period, we haven't spilled an even one drop of crude oil to sea. Fantastic. Environmental safety record. So, Neil, let's get to the topic of hand. If you were to describe to the listener how to create a step change in safety, and you were to kind of share the recipe about what you and your team have done at ATC, how would you describe that? So, um, Rick, you know, one can think of every human being as having a mindset, a skill set, and a tool set. And my experience has been that changing the mindset is the most difficult thing to do, but it is also the most leveraging thing to do. So much of our journey has been about that. And with regard to what, what you actually do to change, to create a step change in safety, one has to have a keen sense of where the organization is in its safety journey. And what strategy you put in place uh, depends actually on where the, the organization is in its journey. And, you know, as they say, horses for courses. So um, we found us doing different things at different points in the 17 years. Yeah, and I know you, for at least the 20 years I've known you, have talked about this idea of mindset, skill set, and tool set. 
and how important the mindset is. Um, can you share some of the stories from the early days on how you changed the mindset and, and you know, where have advertised this podcast as uh, one of the key stories around this significant emotional event uh, <laughs> that happened? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? Sure, sure. So um, when I joined ATC, the safety culture, at least from my viewpoint, was non-existent. Uh, the, the only thing the team focused on was getting the oil in time from one location to the other. And the belief system uh, in the workforce, Rick, was that uh, if in the process of doing that, someone got injured, if there was a spill, well, that was just too bad. It just happened to be part of doing business, you know. My belief was that with that mindset and relative to where I wanted to take the company, the gap was too large to be bridged through continuous improvement. Besides, as we took that journey, if we had chosen the path of continuous improvement at that time, we'd have injured a lot of people. I mean, at that time, we were having a lost time injury every month. Okay. We might well have killed at least a few people between now and then. So in 2001, uh, um, the significant emotional event story was um, one of our ships, the Marine Columbia, was outside Port Angeles, Washington, making its way to Cherry Point with a million barrels of oil to be unloaded at the refinery for processing. And uh, as was par for the course at that time at Port Angeles, uh, one of our engineers got injured very badly. He fell in the engine room and broke his elbow. And uh, while talking to the ship captain, my team realized that his only focus was getting the oil where it needed to be. So what I did was I asked the captain to get off the ship, which is very unusual in the shipping industry, and come to see me in the office in Beaverton. And I put another ship captain to take care of the ship in the meantime. And what did he think about that? Was that uh, something he was looking forward to? No, he, 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 he thought it was completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. so, so he told one of my schedulers that, okay, you know, he's the boss, I got to go see him, I'll go through this logistics, and if he doesn't take up too much of my time in Beaverton, I'll be able to get back on the ship and make the delivery into Cherry Point in the window, i.e. in the time period when he was supposed to be there. That was his focus, and when he said that to my one of my team members, I realized where he was coming from. So when he showed up, um, I actually made him wait. <laughs> and I, took, I made him wait for two and a half hours, and then he and my whole team got together, and I asked him, hey, Captain Scoggins, what happened? And he told me what happened. The guy, you know, had just started his shift, broke his fell on his elbow, broke his elbow. And I said, well, John, who hurt himself, um, where's he from? And the captain said, well, he sounds Texan, I'm not sure. I said, is he married? He says, I don't know. I said, does he have kids? Does he have a mortgage? Now that he's injured, you know, how will, uh, how will he make his ends meet? What are his benefits like? And to each and everything, Captain Scoggin said, I don't know. And I was, uh, Rick, just driving home to him the point that safety is personal. 
these are people. Mm. And so I told him, Captain Scoggins, you really don't care, do you, about this guy? All you care about is getting this uh, crude oil to Cherry Point, and you will be fired unless you change your viewpoint. Now you go back in that conference room, sit down, and write down what will you actually do differently to stop this from happening. And I then made him wait another two hours. What I was trying to do is make sure that he realized that even if we did not make the delivery in Cherry Point in time, I did not care. Wow. That we were going to do it safely or not do it. So he sat down and he knew. He knew what he had to do. I mean, he had to slow the people down. He had to talk to them about their jobs. He just wasn't doing it. So when we got together again, I said, you know, Captain Scoggins, um, the most important thing is taking care of your people. Is that clear? And he said, well, the instructions have never been so clear. <laughs> so, you know, implying that to the rest of the team that he didn't know the priorities. Anyway, so he got back on. The point I'm trying to make is, you know, it, it seemed to me that a very disproportionate, irrational, in-your-face, significant emotional event was necessary throughout the company for people to understand that there is no way, shape, or form that we're going to allow operations to continue in this way. Mm. And how did, so, how did you spread that message past just Captain Scoggins? How did it get to the rest of the fleet? I, so we had a choice, right? We could send out company memo number 34G yeah. or whatever that, or we could, I asked him to call all the other captains. We had 10 ships at the time in the fleet and tell them what exactly had transpired. And Rick, not only did he do that, the chief engineer called the other chiefs and nice. word got out that, hey, we have to do things differently. Then in December 2001, we had another injury, and none then till I think 2011, wow. when this able-bodied seaman fractured his finger. So it's not all that, but that's how we started. Well, I love the fact that you didn't, it wasn't another memo, it was these individuals passing on the message to their peers that helped create the the change and the message you were trying to sell, Anil, is safety is personal, and to take care of your people. Yeah, and uh, I take I take it as they pass that on a message that started to change the culture. Absolutely, you know I heard Gary's podcast, the the gentleman from Chevron, yeah. the refinery manager, and it's amazing how when I heard it how similar his views and mine were. Yeah, ultimately it's deeply deeply personal. And if you can get the people in the workforce to realize that you care, enormously, an enormous amount of good comes out of that, not only in terms of safety performance, but in passion and commitment. So, for example, we used to have um, a retention rate of 54%. In other words, less than half the people would come back to the ship the following year when I joined. Now our retention rates are 99%. We've had one person in the wow. entire fleet quit. And of course, when you have retention, then you know you don't have to keep retraining people. It's a yeah. key success factor. Yeah. 
So that's what it was like, Rick, in 2001, you know, just a very difficult and by design, a disciplinary environment. And then the safety performance actually improved dramatically. Yeah. And the, fo- and the workforce started realizing that, you know, we can do this. And then we started having teamwork evolve. And as that happened, we realized in the leadership team that this way of this onerous leadership style would not work anymore. And we shifted gears to promoting teamwork. Mm-hmm. And then that also took us part of our journey towards multiple years of being at zero. And then um, we did something, I think, which Rick, which uh, others would find unusual. For the last uh, seven years, we've been into this journey of what we call mindfulness, which has three major components to it. The first is building emotional intelligence, which, by the way, RLG helped us with. And then after doing that for several years, we started a program on wellness, physical fitness. Uh, you know, it's just intuitive to me that if, we, if you aren't tired and you're fit, you're less likely to get hurt. Right. And in the last uh, three or four years, it's an inability to focus. With this extraordinary level of performance, our biggest concern was complacency and distraction. And what we were trying to do is find a way to combat that. And our meandering research uh, took us to the field of neurology, actually. Really? Where, yes. Where, um, you know, how can you teach the mind to focus? And it turns out, endemic to being human, you get distracted. And every time you are so, if you gently bring your mind back to the subject at hand, the more times you do it, the, the more the longer you can stay focused. It's the physical equivalent, Rick, of lifting a dumbbell. Now, if you lifted the dumbbell once, it's so stupid to think your muscle would grow, right? But if you do it 10,000 times, guess what? Your muscle grows. And that analogy applies exactly to building the neurological connections in the mind. So there are more connections, and they are stronger. So you tend to get distracted less. So, so I th- let me just ask you a question there, because there's so many learnings in here that you've, you know, one of the messages that I hope the listeners are picking up is that you just didn't stop it at taking care of people and the significant emotional event. You've continued to say, well, what's next? How can we drive continuous improvement in our safety and performance? And so now you, this idea of mindfulness, which, you know, obviously I think we've all heard of for, I'm going to add the word meditation, but for our personal lives, but now you've applied it to a corporate setting to help folk, people focus, develop their emotional muscle or their to be less distracted. It, has it actually made a difference for the company? I can imagine it's made a difference for the individual, but it hasn't made a difference for the company. Do you have any examples of where it's actually paying off to the company spent this much time and money on training on mindfulness? Oh, it's paid off hugely, hugely, Rick. Um, So I I think I may have mentioned to you separately, I spend a lot of my time on the ships. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of my time at the safety meetings. I spend a lot of my time watching them work and chatting with them in small groups. So 
for example, we've integrated mindfulness into our safety systems. Okay. So, for example, when they do a job hazard analysis, you know, breaking the job down into its components, yeah. writing down what you can do to mitigate that particular hazard. After they finish that, they all just sit down as a team, the three or four people who are going to be assigned to a particular task. And they just sit down quietly and envision for themselves how they'll actually do the job. Okay. They have a, a safety break. So after the safety meetings, they'll sit quietly for two minutes and then just practice this mindfulness, uh, which is deep breathing, basically. Yep. You know, it's crazy to think that sailors, <laughs> you know, who, who are not typically hired because of their emotional maturity can take to something like this. But we had a neurologist, uh, her name is Susan Miller. She was a professor at Yale. She actually rode one of our ships, and when she presented the scientific basis for applying mindfulness to safety. Uh, it's been amazing. The pickup of the workforce has been amazing. But I would also say that, you know, that came on the back of this, you know, seven, ten years trainings program in emotional intelligence and wellness. Yeah. So the workforce at that particular point in time was prepared. They were prepared to accept these strange and different concepts. And in the literature, we couldn't find anything linking mindfulness to safety. Yeah. As you say, there's a lot about mindfulness, but not its link to safety. So we've been kind of inventing that as we go. Wow, fantastic. So, Anil, I'll ask you the same question I asked Gary, and that is prevalent in the industry today, is can you achieve good safety performance and good efficiency performance is do the two go together is it you can just focus on one what are your thoughts to folks that are grappling with that issue yeah well my work experience has been that these are not only compatible goals but they are inextricably linked okay safe behaviors bring about quality performance and long-term cost control you know when you have a safety mindset for example applied to maintenance you do the job once and you do it correctly and so you don't have to go back in and fix it again. We also actually have data since I've been here for 17 years that the reduction in our losses resulting from injuries etc which include claims and this and that, that reduction rate is greater than our fleet-wide voyage repair budget for really? the entire year. Yes. So if that doesn't prove that safety pays, I don't think what I can't, you know, I don't know what will. Yeah. But I want, but uh, um, you know, I'm on the board of the professional safety people, and they keep asking me this question: Can you can you provide evidence that safety pays so that we can persuade others to be safe? Yeah. I don't like that, Rick. Why not? Because because the core is really making your workforce realize that. You passionately care about them. You know, if because the implication in linking safety to to good business performance is that if that link were not there, you wouldn't be safe. Right. You could be heard to be saying that, and ultimately, that is not what motivated me. 
Right. You know, when you when you're accountable leading people, you have to say, you know, what kind of future are you leading them to? It cannot be one where they land up going home, you know, injured badly. Most of these people work with their hands. They can't have a life, a good decent life, earn decent money if they are badly injured. Right. So the, I, I view it as a, I have now, you know, I view it as something much more profound. And when you move it away from safety to caring, it allows the kind of behaviors and long-term performance that we've achieved in ATC. So they're compatible, but they're not the reason for it, in my view. Oh, for well me. said. Nice summary. So, Anil, before we came on the air, I asked you the question of how are things now? You've done a great job describing you know, where you were 17, 18 years ago, um, added the significant emotional bent and, and more importantly, showing that you're going to take care of the people. You've ad added mindfulness. You've taken a long-term view. Describe for the listeners, what what's the culture like today? If you were to describe somebody, uh, what ATC culture is like? Yeah. So, Rick, um, the trouble I have with that is the words I use Everyone uses those words. <laughs> it, it, it's to, to understand culture, you have to experience it. And so what we do is we have a lot of our external stakeholders go to the ships and ride the ships. We've had senators, uh, you know, really people who, whose opinions matter, ride our ships. And there you actually see the way people work together, when they actually care for each other, it just shows up in so many different ways. So, for example, wellness, yeah. right? Um, in wellness, we created a program where in every meal on the ship, there's a healthy option. But we never required people to take the healthy option. What we did do is hire a full-time nurse, a dietitian, and she sailed on the ships and explain to the workforce the effect different kind of foods have on your body. And here's what between here's the linkage between wellness and emotional intelligence, for example. Okay. Deep introspection in an employee, when combined with uh, uh, an advocacy for a safer way, way of being. When you can get a worker to start questioning himself, why am I doing this job this way? Is there, could there be a safer way to do it? That combination creates an environment where the worker permanently shifts his way of working to a safer way of working. That's what you would observe if you went to the ship. Wow. And it wasn't a forced... You, thou shalt do wellness. You, it was education, training, and then let individuals make the choice. At, yes. Once okay. we got into, not initially, right? In 2001, we couldn't do that. Yeah. Because the, the state of readiness of the workforce wasn't there, Rick. This is what I'm trying to say is, you know, you can't have, there's this saying, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. You You can't have a, pre-imagined uh, strategy and say, you know, this is what I'm going to do when I get there. You have to see what will work, and that depends on the safety culture at that time. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's just truly a story of continuous improvement. You assess where the company and the people and the culture is and and uh, diagnose and, and uh, build solutions that are appropriate at the time. And it's almost, I can see the step change story happening. Um, so Anil, as we really appreciate your time today and these leading edge ideas around changing performance and safety and culture. Any, any other lesson that you want to share in summary with the listeners? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say a couple of things, Rick. One is, you know, you have to build deep trusting relationship with all your external stakeholders. So, for example, 80% of my work, workforce is unionized. We have very, very long, deep relations with the union leaders. We develop very close relationships with the citizens' advisory councils in California, Washington, and in Alaska, so that there's a deeper level of trust. And what that does is it ensures that there aren't competing forces tugging at the workforce, that they hear the same message from me and the union leaders. Like, have you spent time with them in the union hall, or, or has it just been on the ships, or both? Um, no, I spend a lot of time with them. In, so, I don't know, um, quite by accident, I did one of the smartest things I've done in ATC. <laughs> Rick, when I joined, I went to Piney Point, Maryland, where the union school is, and spent four days there. And when I went there for that long, the union leader said, wow, if this guy's going to be there, I'm going to be there. And we spent those four days, like 12 to 15 hours a day, just getting to know each other. And finally, Mike Sacco, the union leader for the SIU, said to me, okay, Anil, you know, he looks at me directly and he says, um, I've got to trust you, Anil. Sometimes you'll take it on the chin, sometimes I'll take it on the chin but we have to always be able to trust each other. And he thrust out his hand, you know. Yeah. And I said, you got that. So we it started there, and we uh, we go and visit them every year. Is that right? So we, we don't have situations, Rick, where the union leaders are exerting any different pressure than we are. Because if you think about it, ultimately the driver for unions is what? The welfare and care and safety of the workers. Right. So if you're doing that, you know, there's there's an unbelievable bond you develop. At least we have been able to. Yeah, great, great example. Anil, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. You've shared with us so many great stories and key success factors and really leading-edge ideas, but mostly the idea of, you know, caring for people and then creating continued assessing and then identifying opportunities to improve and different tools and methods and and of course starting with uh, changing mindsets. So Anil, really appreciate your time today and thanks for joining us. Um, honored to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rick. Yeah, Take you care. bet. Yep. So uh, listeners, this has been episode seven of CI for Life. I'm Rick Highland. If you have any feedback for us or comments or insights for either Anil or I, we'd love to hear from you. My email address is rickh at rlginternational.com. And uh, wishing you a great day and have a safe day. Bye.